When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Nanny Cantaloupe, and it's quite an honor to be sitting here with Edgar Frosi of Tangerine Dream. And uh, it's been quite a while since Tangerine Dream has toured the United States. How has the current electric Mandarin tour been going? It turns out to be uh, quite a hard tour because if you haven't been here for about 20 years, for whatever reason, um, you have to build a new ground, you know. And apart from uh, those diehard fans which follow us since decades, you have to open up new cases for the youngsters. Not too easy. Do you find that the audience has been kind of mixed in the Yeah, I would say region? so. I would say so. There, there are people who really grew up with music since about 45 years. And there are into their age, but there are also uh, younger people, you know, you want to listen to what a bit of the originals are, you know, and uh, so it's it's quite mixed. It's, it's fascinating that this group has lasted so long, and there have been so many different periods of rotating members, and yet Tangerine Dream's sound has an identifiable aesthetic that's uh, remained. What do you think's been the fuel for the flames uh, in the last few decades? Um, you see, there are always two different perspectives. You know, one perspective is uh, the perspective of the band or founder of the band, in my case, and that runs for many years. And there is another perspective of those who watch the band through a lot of years. And for them, a few turns we've made may have not been absolutely logic, you know, and, uh, you know, there are critical voices, there are enthusiastic voices, so it's, it's, it's a total mixture of everything. Uh, in the 70s, 80s and early 90s, you spent uh, time with many different labels like Orr, Virgin, Jive Electro, and others. Uh, why the switch to starting your own label, TDI, in the 90s? How has that been working? TDI was the first label we founded uh, by ourselves, and, and uh, we're ruling all the businesses ourselves, and uh, then the label turned into a new label called Eastgate Music and Arts, and all of that because we got more or less pissed off by uh, by the big boys from the industry, you know, and, and working with most of the bigger companies, we found that there is not just one you really can trust. And I, in public, I don't want to go deeper into, into that yeah. matter. 
So you, the label's been working out pretty good for you? Uh, it's it's working. Seeing it from a, from a commercial side, it worked, worked out much better than we thought it would. Um, you never reach that many people, you know, because you don't have the distribution facilities. You know, we're working mainly through the internet and downloads and, and, and things. But at the end of the day, you still have more money in the pocket, you know. Flashing back a little bit, can you give us some insight into the place in your life that you were in in the late 60s, uh, your life experiences and the music or sound that inspired you to create the music you did then? <coughs> I just can't speak for myself. And I have been like most of the people in the late 60s. I was in the, <coughs> in the entire psychedelic movement and saving the world for a dime and uh, trying to make everything better than it was and and that went straight into family business and it went straight into the way to produce music and uh, to entertain people and so two or three decades later you know it turned out to be quite a illusion and uh, even if there have been quite good thoughts and quite good inspirations and quite good undertakings, but uh, finally you can't change the consciousness of a huge amount of people or you can't change the environment just with a few chords and a few melody lines, that's impossible. Well, what was the social climate like in West Berlin? Uh, at the time versus nowadays or through the years? <coughs> Once again, two perspectives, you know, if you lived there and uh, and knew what it really was, that it was a luxury chain, you know, because it was the eastern, most east, uh, eastern point uh, of uh, the French, American and uh, British Army, you know, just to watch the Iron Curtain in those days. So everybody was very much interested to keep that place going. And they've been invested millions in culture and uh, 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 industrial support just to keep the people in town, you know. So if you lived there, it wasn't dangerous at all. If had an amount of protection from all nations, you know, the best one you could imagine. So uh, if you saw it from the other perspective, from the outside, it looked like, oh my God, never go to Berlin, you get jailed and you never get out of it again, you which spent. was stupid. But as far as the overall political situation is concerned or was concerned, you know, was a disaster, you know, because East uh, Berlin, East Germany was, was a jail, in fact. You, know. you spent quite a bit of time there? <clears throat> I spent, um, yeah, over about 50 years of my life in Berlin. Yeah. And uh, so I've got good and I've got bad memories because I started the band there 
uh, out of an underground fear which was very politically active and uh, so without the surrounding of those days maybe the group would have grown in a completely different direction. Uh, the Phaedra era, around 74, uh, it became somewhat of a hit record, right? Or somewhat of a... Uh, <coughs> accidentally, accidentally, because uh, uh, as an instrumental band of those days, you know, in a, in a, on the edge of a, of a pop and rock business, you know, with all those bands with glitter and glimmer and stuff, um, you couldn't expect anything from from just being instrumental and playing a, a record which has nothing than a bubbling rhythm and a few melody lines, if you put it right to the point. And all of a sudden, you know, totally unexpected for even for the for the record company version, it became. Uh, um, and number six, number five, number four in the, in the billboard charts, and then went yeah. number whatever in Australia and in, in, in various other countries in Europe, and so all of a sudden from nothing to everywhere. And that was quite a surprise, but gave us a kick to start for a career which went on to today. Do you suppose that was due a bit to the rhythm machines or the uh, rhythmic sensibilities of the record? It was a rhythm, you know. Um, in in uh, my memories, what's been called the Mook synthesizer, you know, invented by Bob Mook. Uh, it has been that bass line, you know, the very uh, hypnotic rhythm patterns, you know, which maybe has attracted a, attracted a lot of people. So it was a rhythm, in fact, yeah. Yeah, it should be known that a lot of Dublab listeners are gearhead nerds, <laughs> so please don't spare us any details uh, relating to the specific gear you used or your relationship or obsession with particular pieces of equipment. Uh, have there been prototype instruments or special electronic instruments built especially for you? or I heard you build electronic instruments too, or have? Um, when we started using electronics, we even couldn't talk about instruments. We talked about, you know, toys or gadgets or gimmicks or whatever. Because at that time, <coughs> there were just Bob Mook, who worked with Walter Carlos, Wendy Carlos, at that period of time, producing switch on Bach and stuff. That was the only machinery which could have been called an electronic instrument or a synthesizer or whatever, but it was not affordable in any way. And so we were, you know, playing around, fooling around with all those little sinus generators and echo machines and reverb units to produce sounds, noises, you know, and trying to mix them into some new forms of musical structures, you know. And much later, 74, when we got the first MOOC modular machinery ourselves, then we started producing electronics and sound music and rhythm. 
at what point did Tangerine Dream make the shift from being largely improvised to focusing on fixed compositions, uh, and why? Simply because there are three stages in, in uh, um, technical developments. You know, the, you had the analog age. That was the time we were just talking about MOOC synthesizers and, and the first analog monotype synthesizers. And then the second stage was using digital instruments and came MIDI, so you had a sort of an interaction between various forms of instruments. And then uh, you had the, the age of the computerized music. And uh, till the com computer and, and the enormous storage facilities and, and uh, programmings and all that came into the game, we did improvise purely, 100%. Um, after that, improvisation, like we had it in the old days, wasn't possible anymore. If you've got a sequence of program, I mean, it's, it's like an empty sheet of paper, right? So you have to do something with it, you have to write down something, you know, you have to compose, okay? So there are given patterns you have to work with. And you can't say, okay, I press a button, I'm just fooling around with a computer and hopefully it will be a background sound you can improvise to. That's stupid. Yeah, you have to. Worry. So it became more and more uh, a composition thing and, and uh, so uh, that went on and on and we without making an over-understatement, I think we are pretty good on it today to use it as, as a tool which gives us enough freedom to play what you can play with six hands, and the rest is a composition. Uh, Tangerine Dream scored many, many soundtracks, uh, over 60, is that correct? 64, wow. including the European ones. Mm -hmm. What is your take on working with the filmmakers in the film industry? First of all, completely different than uh, working in a, in a studio, in a studio album, or just composing music for yourself or the rest of the world. If, you, if you're scoring a movie, I mean, you, you are a part of the chain, you know, and sometimes not the strongest one, but still a very important one. And what you have to do is, and that makes the main difference, is you have to listen to the director, what the director wants to hear, or the producer may likes, or finally what the, the music editor will tell you to do in order to get the 100% for the movie. And therefore you, you are on one hand limited, on the other hand everybody is asking for the 100%, you know, so it's, it's, it's a bit of a 
balanced and sometimes unbalanced uh, situation. But the uh, good thing, we did it for 16 years, over about 16 years here in Hollywood. And, and the good thing about it is the learning process because there is no single little aspect in sound and music you wouldn't learn anything about, you know, because it's, it's, it's such a massive field of experimental and, and, and uh, exciting explorations, you know, that uh, I'm still happy that I got involved in those things, you know, even if I had my very bizarre hours you know, working with people, okay, but they have, they have bizarre hours working with me, so that's okay. You suppose that kicked up the professionalism of uh, the band a little bit? If you, if you work for such a long period of time, um, being told what to do, uh, you have to react at the right moment when you have to stop it. Otherwise, you, to put it quite clearly, you lose a huge part of your identity. You know, because you can't always jump from left to right to, to the roof and do the... Uh, running across the ceiling just because someone's paying you and you have to do that. I mean, it's, there was the, the desire to going back to what you are, you know, your, your own uh, ideas about me, and that's, that's why we stopped it about eight, nine years ago. But now, after all those times, we are back in now, working for the big screen again. We will see what has changed in, in the meantime. Uh, you did a few, more than a few, uh, solo LPs in the 70s. Mm. Uh, how did those come about? It's the same reason like, um, oh yeah, just talking about regarding film music, you know, if you're working with the, with the band, uh, it would be silly just to play the ego fool, you know, and say, okay, you have to do that and that and that and that. Even if what I always try to explain, I've got my 51%, you know, like, like a shareholder, you know, because I founded the band, but I have to listen to the others. I have to, to, to discuss things, and, and if someone has a very good idea, that will be a good idea, and stays as a good idea forever, you know. And uh, so that's why sometimes a record is a compromise. If you work on your solo stuff, you do whatever you want. And if it's uh, crashing down the hill, it's crashing down. If it's if it's a huge success, it's a huge success. But uh, it's only you who is, uh, you know, responsible for it. Have you ever felt much pressure from uh, labels to make your sound more this way or that way? Since um, we founded uh, our own labels, of course not. But before, I mean, every artist, every recording artist will tell you the same story, you know. It's just, I don't want to go into it deeply, but just one thing, you know, if, you, if you're very creative and active, uh, 
you compose music, you write music every day, you know, and and uh, sooner or later you've got an album to, together, you know, and you want to release it, you want to get it out to the public. And then the record company comes along and says, okay, wait another year or a year and a half, you know, because uh, you can't release it right now. It's, it's uh, too early because the last one is just somewhere. And you can't uh, work with your own time schedule, you can't work with your own musical ideas, you can't work with uh, your public relations the way you want. You even can't uh, make a decision which uh, picture has to be on the cover, you know, and that's ridiculous. And so that's why we split it long ago and we are happy with it. Speaking of the album covers, uh, I'm curious about yeah, the album art of some of the early 70s Tangerine Dream stuff and your solo stuff, because I noticed that there's uh, a fun little recurring image, uh, that of a little girl in black and white that's been uh, collaged in mm. various sprawling full-color textural artwork, and I was curious who this girl was. Um. The girl was my son. Oh, and uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. And he, I, yeah, but it's he, so uh, tiny in the art that yeah, I yeah, uh, yeah, no, not the image uh, is yeah, pretty right. He, he looked like a little girl, but but he wasn't. No, that was kind of a, a talisman, you know. Like we put it in one, you know, on the first record, we, because you know, as a parents, you're very proud, you know, the first son. So we put it in one. Then it became kind of a running gag, you know. So for the first about, I guess, six, seven records, he is somewhere hidden on the cover, you know. Well, I, I guess we're about done. I, uh, I really appreciate, we really appreciate yeah. you being able to spend some time with us. Good. That's okay. That's your drop. That's my drop. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, and uh, good luck with your show tonight. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. Looking forward to it.